invite you to open your Bible this morning to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Hebrews 7 is uh, packed full of um, wonderful biblical truth, but it can be a little tricky. I was um, this morning, as I was just thinking about going through this text this week when people are going to be a little bit sleepy, I just thought I'm um, going to have to really encourage you to put your thinking caps on. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to uh, be able to unpack all the details here, but I just want, as we read the text, remember that he's writing to Jewish Christians who uh, will understand completely what he's talking about. They'll get why it matters. We'll try to unpack that in the message. But as we read through it, just try to read it as a first century persecuted Jewish Christian who's being tempted to just go back to Judaism, um, back to family, back to community, back to uh, some social standing and um, and to be done with, with all that, uh, the heartache that came along with being a Christian. And uh, so the writer here, possibly Barnabas, I'm just going to call him Barnabas. I think that's the best guess. We don't know who wrote the letter exactly. But he's, he's striving to encourage them with this wonderful truth about Jesus, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, let's see why that matters. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 7. <clears throat> It really picks up. I'm going to start in verse 19 of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, <coughs> Excuse me, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for it, under it uh, the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests." 
This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who, became a pri- who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever." That's taken from Psalm 110, verse 4. This, Jesus, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. God in heaven, these are, these are weighty words uh, and yet a bit hard for us to grasp. And we pray that your spirit would help us. Give us spiritual understanding to understand the beauty of Jesus as he is revealed here for the encouragement of our souls here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 7, as I said, is, it's, it's a pretty intricate uh, argument, and uh, it would be a great Sunday school class, uh, probably a series of classes, uh, just to, uh, to go through the argument point by point. I think it's helpful just for us to remember this morning that the letter as a whole is a, uh, it's intensive pastoral counseling for discouraged people. That's what the letter of of uh, Hebrews is, intensive pastoral counseling for very discouraged people, people who are suffering. Um, And that's maybe what part of the appeal of the book of Hebrews uh, for Christians today, because uh, Christians are often discouraged. Uh, Christians often feel like uh, it's, it's too hard or the road is too long. And um, maybe you, maybe you feel like a failure even this morning as a Christian. I remember uh, talking to a a man, uh, just having kind of casual conversation with a guy, and, and I, I noticed in his language, um, you know, he was kind of referring to religious things, so I, I, I asked him, are you a Christian? He says, oh yeah. And then after a moment's pause, he says, uh, not a very good one though. Uh, I still mess up a lot. And some of you maybe can um, identify with that. It's very easy for Christians to, to uh, live with a nagging sense that we're not, we're not very good Christians. Uh, maybe the trials of life rattle our faith more than we think it should or rob us of our joy. Well, um, one of the good, the, the, part of the good news of Hebrews chapter 7 is that if you're feeling that way this morning, um, there's a corrective 
because there's something not quite right in the, in the way that you're thinking. The, uh, the, the chapter 7 specifically helps us remember that being a Christian is not primarily a matter of, of your performance, of, of how well you're doing, how moral you are, the progress that you've made in the life of sanctification, but being a Christian fundamentally uh, is about your relationship to Jesus Christ, the great high priest of God. So the, the primary focus of, of a Christian is not First of all, and what are you doing here in this life, but what has Christ accomplished for you, and what is Jesus doing for you right now in the court of heaven? That is the essential element of Christianity. Who do you have representing you before God? And, and what is that representation about, and what does it accomplish for you? Well, that's what the writer uh, here is trying to get to. He's been wanting to talk about the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus for a while. He mentions it twice back in chapter 5. But then remember, he told them, but you people are slow of hearing. You're dull of hearing. You're sluggish. And so it's hard to explain these things to you because um, there's, a, there's just sort of a cynicism that's settled in, in their heart and mind. But now after... Um, uh, he's moved forward, and now he's finally going to get to this thing that he's wanted to, to talk to them about. Uh, he wants to talk to them about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where you're going to be tempted to zone out. Because uh, you're a real person. you got real issues, real trials, real struggles. You were hoping to hear a sermon that had some practical benefit. And this a sermon on the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus does not sound um, that interesting or very helpful. It's just not a category that we are, are familiar with when it comes to thinking about Jesus or our life. When is the last time uh, you thanked God in prayer for the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus? I'll bet... I'll bet um, not that I'm a betting man. I bet those words have never uh, come across your mouth in prayer. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. If you have said that, come after, uh, talk to me afterwards, I'll give you a star. <clears throat> it's just not language we're familiar with. It's not a category we're used to. And we should be. The, least, uh, the writer to the Hebrews thinks so. So let's uh, trust that Barnabas, the, the great encourager, the physician of weary souls, uh, knows what he's about when he's talking to us about this aspect of Christ's ministry. Uh, who is, we're going to begin just by asking some basic questions. Who, who is Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek is one of the most mysterious men in the whole Bible. He shows up this very brief little snapshot way back in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Lot had been kidnapped by some uh, kings... Uh, five nations had sort of gathered together and made war against Sodom, and, and the lot had been captured and carried off with all of his family, all of his goods. And Abraham goes and to battle with these five kings, and by the grace and power of God, he is victorious. He destroys them and rescues Lot. And on his way back um, to his place there in the land of Canaan, he's met by this mysterious figure, Melchizedek who, uh, I'll read it, Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? 
He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's it. Melchizedek disappears from the pages of Scripture. He shows up one other time in Psalm 110 as part of a prophecy concerning the Messiah that he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's all you have in the entire Bible about Melchizedek, except for the book of Hebrews, where he's mentioned eight times. So what is this about? Why is, uh, why is Barnabas, or, who, or whoever the author might be, why is he so excited about um, Melchizedek? Well, because he's convinced Melchizedek is a, um, a type pointing to Jesus. Uh, that, he, that he resembles. He's not the same as, some people have asked, is Melchizedek actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? I don't believe so. I think uh, the point is that he resembles the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. But, but here's a type. Here's a, a little snapshot way back in Genesis 14 of, of the Christ. And, and, and the writer goes on and, and sort of lays this out for us. Look at his name. Melchizedek, it means king of righteousness. Well, who's the king of righteousness? Jesus is the king of righteousness. And look at what his, his rule. He's the king of Salem. What does Salem mean? It means peace. This is the king of peace. Uh, and Salem, of course, uh, was a real place. It was the city that would later come to be known as Jerusalem, city of peace. Same place. So it's fascinating that, that Melchizedek shows up, and, and the writer says, you know, we don't know who he, there's no genealogy. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he dies. It's, it's like he just shows up from eternity past and then goes into eternity future, and he, he's just there and gone, and we, and we know nothing about him except his name and his rule and his, uh, his relationship with Abraham. But it... it, it Strikes me that, that here Melchizedek shows up and Abraham gets a glimpse into his future as he meets the king of righteousness and the king of the city that he would one day, uh, that his descendants would one day in, inhabit. Uh, it's, it's, you know, like um, these movies or stories where a person from the future comes back in time and, and gives people who are living in the contemporary time a glimpse into what's what's going to come, what the world's going to be like. Well, that, that's Melchizedek, in a sense. One of the, one of the commentators, McWilliams, said, uh, he reigned, Melchizedek reigned, where Abraham's seed was destined to reign. Remember what, what Abraham is doing in the land of Canaan. He's living in tents. It's, it's not his home. He's there because God told him to go there and to live as a foreigner and a stranger in the land that God would one day give to his descendants. So it's Abraham's by promise, but it's not, it doesn't feel like home. It's full of wickedness. It's full of paganism. He, he, it's, um, and he's living in tents. But he's called there to live by God in faith. And then Melchizedek shows up, and Melchizedek reigning where Abraham's descendants would one day reign is uh, an ambassador, in a sense, from the future, a testimony to Abraham that what God had promised was going to come to pass, that there was a place called the city of peace, 
And it would be the city of God, the king of righteousness, would reign there. All these rich biblical themes uh, come together in this man. And what a great encouragement for early New Testament Christians. They are experiencing Abrahamic living. They've lost their stability. They've lost their place in this world. They're living as foreigners and strangers. They're outcasts. The... um, They don't have a home here, and yet they're living by faith in what God has promised to them, and in Jesus Christ, you see, the reality of what is yet to come has broken into the present. Jesus is our Melchizedek, the evidence of our promised future, the the path into what is yet to come. Jesus reigns where we are destined to reign. So it's a wonderful Old Testament figure. Well, what does he tell us actually about the priesthood of Christ? This is where uh, the writer really takes his time. He wants, he wants his readers to, to get the superiority of Melchizedek as a priest. Uh, he's a priest of the Most High God. Interestingly, this means that God has a people that we don't know anything about in the, in the Old Testament. Doesn't, there's nothing in the book of Genesis about um, Melchizedek's Reign, Melchizedek, the people um, that he rules over, the, who, who clearly see him as a priest. So, so God has his work of grace going, going on in the world, even though we don't read about it there in Genesis. But what he wants the readers, his readers to get is that uh, Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham sees Melchizedek as his superior. Abraham receives Melchizedek as a high priest from God. Abraham tithes a tenth of all of his spoils to Melchizedek. Abraham receives a blessing from Melchizedek. All evidences that Abraham sees Melchizedek as his spiritual superior. Now, why does that matter? Well, again, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood that exists under the law of Moses. That's all they knew. They, that, that is what they had been told to do by God himself. And they had left that to come and be a Christian, and, and yet that doesn't seem to be going well, and, and they're tempted just to go back. Barnabas wants them to know, well, you're leaving, if you do this, you see, you're leaving the superior priesthood of Jesus. His priesthood is superior for several reasons. He is a priest by oath from God. Levitical priests were priests because they were born to a Levitical parent. It just, if you were born in the tribe of Levi, you were a priest. That's how it worked. This one, Jesus, is a priest by oath. The Lord has sworn, Psalm 110. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So here we have a priest who's God's specifically chosen, appointed, forever, all-time priest. And he's never going to change his mind. He's never going to replace this priest with another one. This one then has an eternal ministry. Verse 23, 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death. They die, and they, so they couldn't continue in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, alive. And therefore, he has an effective ministry. 
He accomplishes what the law never could and what the Old Testament priests never could. 719, for the law made nothing perfect. It made nothing perfect. They sacrificed thousands and thousands and thousands of bulls and rams and goats and lambs and, and blood all over the place. And yet all that blood simply points to the necessity for atonement. It can't actually wipe a single sin away. No matter how scrupulously you keep the laws, no matter how faithfully you perform the sacrifices, and they did every day, morning and evening. But it, it's not able to make anyone perfect. The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for the sins of people made in the image of God. And the evidence of that was the, the sacrifices never end, and the people never actually get into the Holy of Holies. They're utterly, absolutely forbidden to go near to God. They're not fit to go near to God. That's the Old Testament system. But, the writer says, Jesus has offered his sacrifice once for all, meaning that it has accomplished the atonement, and by that once for all sacrifice, sinners are actually able to draw near to God. Verse 19. They're able to draw near. Now, why do these Jewish Christians, again, need to understand that? Well, when, <coughs> once you understand that Jesus is God's one and only high priest. And remember what high priests do. Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest, a chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God for sins. That's what high priests do. They act on behalf of men in relation to God to deal with sin. Well, if you understand as a Jewish Christian that Jesus is the only high priest that God acknowledges, it, it just clarifies things. Again, put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jewish Christian. You're tired, you're, you've lost your family, you've lost your job, you've lost your home, you've lost your friends, you're mocked, you're alienated, you're lonely, you're persecuted. There is so much pressure to quit and you look back at your Jewish community and your Jewish family, and you realize they're not bad people. They're morally sincere. They care about right and wrong. They, they obviously believe in God. They, they read the Old Testament Bible. They are serious about spiritual things. So... Why not just go back and serve God in the safety, the culturally accepted safety of the Jewish religion? Why not, why not just go back and be with these good, moral, serious people who believe in God? Why not just go back to the Jewish religion? And the answer is, you see, because there's no Jesus in the Jewish religion. It's the only reason. If you, if you just want to have community and you just want some, some people who are morally concerned and, and you want to hang with people who believe in God, and etc., go back to the Jewish religion. But if you want Jesus, you see, there's no Jesus there. It's very relevant today. People are tempted all the time to leave Christianity, and many do. Particularly, you see, when it becomes unpopular, when it becomes uh, disdained, when Christians begin to be persecuted. Jesus says, many will fall away, and it'll be for similar reasons. It's not that they'll stop believing in God. They'll believe in God. 
But you see, they'll start looking around and realize there are other people who practice other religions, whether it's secularism or Buddhism or, uh, or a Muslim people, who are serious about the faith, and, and they're, I mean, they're serious about moral things, and they're serious about spiritual things, and, and they, they say they believe in God, and they seem to be living happy lives, and, and people think, well, why, why should I put up with all the, the baggage of the title of Christianity when it's evident I don't, I don't need to be a Christian in order to be a good, moral, spiritual person? And it's true, you don't. So why, why not just stop going to church and go serve God in the safety of a more culturally acceptable spirituality? And the answer is the same. There's only one reason you wouldn't do that. It's because there's no Jesus there. Not, not the Melchizedekian priest Jesus. <clears throat> you see, friends, you can be a spiritually um, moral person apart from Christ. So what? So what? That was never the point of Christianity in the first place. Jesus didn't come and die to help you become a moral, spiritual person. The issue has always been, how are you going to become a righteous person? How will you be reconciled before the Father in heaven? And all the spirituality and morality in the world, it cannot accomplish that. The law makes nothing perfect. Moral improvement is unable to reconcile you to God. This will help you in conversations with people who are moral and spiritual and who say they believe in God and yet do not believe in Jesus, you see. You, then you know what, it's a, what, what you're about. You know where the difference is. And they'll look at you and they'll say, so what's the difference between us? In fact, they might be able to point out, I am more moral than you are. You have issues. And you can say, you're absolutely right. But I'm not a Christian um, because it, it promises to make me a better person. I'm a Christian because I, I failed to be a good person. And I've, um, I believe there's only one way to be reconciled to God. You see, that's the nub of the issue. It's always the nub of the issue. The great dilemma of mankind and the, and the essential point and purpose of Christianity are two sides of the same coin. The dilemma of mankind is that no amount of morality or spirituality can make you right with God. And the essential point of, of Christianity is that the message is there is a way, there is one way where a sinner can be made right with God, can truly be perfected and reconciled to God the Father. And that way is Jesus Christ, God's chosen, appointed high priest. And it's the only way. Jesus confirms this when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now you can take that or leave that, but it is the essence of the Christian message that Jesus is the only way to God. And so if you just want to be a better person, a more spiritual person, more moral person, you feel free to go choose the religion that suits you. But if you want to be reconciled to the Father who created you, if you want to be saved from the judgment that you justly, rightly deserve, then you must come to Jesus because only Jesus, as the great high priest, can atone for your sin, can make you perfect, can reconcile you to God. That's the Christian message. This is the Christian's hope and confidence. 
But, the writer says, on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. We have a better hope, a better confidence in Jesus than anything offered by religion. Jesus being God's chosen, appointed priest, reigns forever. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ain't that wonderful news? There's no way to be saved in all the world except Jesus, and yet in Jesus you can be saved to the uttermost. It could be translated at all times. It means in every way. The ability of this great high priest never weakens. The power of the gospel is just as full and rich and true today as it was on resurrection morning. This Jesus, and only this Jesus, can save completely from first to last, from the least sinner to the greatest sinner. He's able to deliver from every sin and from wherever you are to the uttermost, all the way, every step of the way, until you are perfected in glory. And that's what he promises to do. You see, there, there's nothing lacking in the ministry of Christ. How does he accomplish this? Well, we'll wrap with that. He accomplishes it by making intercession. And by making intercession as the guarantor of a better covenant. We don't have time this morning to cover the, the topic of, of Christ's ministry as a guarantor. I'll touch on it, but we're going to, uh, Lord willing, pick that up next week. But let's, let's close with this. You see, one day, friends, you're going to appear before the judgment seat of God. It is appointed unto every man once to die and then to face the judgment. It's going to happen to you. It, it's absolutely going to happen. And the question on that, in that moment is, is, what are you going to rest in and trust in? How are you going to make yourself presentable before God? How do, what, what are you going to do about your sin? Your morality will not suffice. Your good intentions will not suffice. Your religious practices will not suffice. You need, you need a high priest, someone who can actually, truly remove the stain and someone who can actually clothe you in righteousness. Remember the, the parable about the, the people who show up at the wedding and they don't have the right clothes? And uh, sorry, you're not allowed in. If you're not robed to the righteousness, you're not getting into the new heaven and earth, which is the home of righteousness. So that is, that's, the, that's the issue. If you don't know anything else about Christianity, but, you know, but if you know that thing, well, then you're on to it. You need a high priest who can intercede and intercede as your guarantor. That's 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's a legal term. A guarantor um, is a secondary party. This is from the a legal dictionary. A secondary party who becomes obligated to repay a debt for the party primarily responsible who has failed to repay that obligation. A guarantor is a secondary party who has become obligated to repay a debt for the party primarily responsible who has failed to pay the debt. Friends, you and I are the party primarily responsible. 
We are the ones who've sinned against God. We are the ones who've incurred a great unpayable debt before the law, before God's character, before God's holiness, a debt that you and I cannot repay. And the gospel, you see, is God's promise that someone is able and willing to step in and be the guarantor, and his name is Jesus. And that this Jesus accomplished by taking your debt upon himself and obligating himself to fulfill, to make payment for that debt, this Jesus went to the cross bearing your sins, suffering the wrath of God, suffering the judgment of the law and, and so that you could be forgiven. Being forgiven doesn't mean God just says, well, let's not worry about it. Being forgiven means that God places his son Jesus as the guarantor and the payment, the penalty, and Jesus takes the penalty so that the debt has actually been paid in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ and that the righteousness of Jesus Christ is freely now given to you as your righteousness all by grace and through faith. It means to be a Christian isn't, it's not to be a moral, a good person. I mean, obviously that is a fruit that the Holy Spirit is going to be at work, but that, what it means to be a Christian is that you are a person who has had this happen to you. Jesus has stepped in as your guarantor. And the debt, your debt has been paid by Jesus. And this Jesus ever lives. You will never, ever be in debt again. And this righteousness will always suffice to open the, the gates and doors of heaven. You have been reconciled. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that Jesus, you see, now stands in heaven as our advocate and as our righteousness. This is, this is the wonder of, of the story about Stephen when he's being stoned to death. Acts chapter 7. And he, before he dies, as he's dying, he, he looks up and heaven is open and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, why is Jesus standing there when we read in other parts that he's seated at the right hand of God? Well, I think the, the intent is that Stephen sees Jesus at work in a sense. Jesus advocating, Jesus interceding, Jesus as his righteousness. You see, the beauty of Christ's ministry, I think we often assume that Jesus is in heaven asking the Father for mercy for us. It's like a lawyer. If you go to a court of law and you, and you go during the sentencing, uh, the judge will call the, the guilty person to come forward and he'll go up there with his lawyer and uh, the judge will read the crime and then the lawyer goes to work. And what he says, he, he, he pleads for mercy. Uh, Your Honor, uh, just want you to know my client is dreadfully sorry for what he's done. He's already suffered many terrible consequences for what he's done. Uh, he's already uh, paid this penalty. He's been in jail, et cetera, for these many days. Uh, he's made these efforts to change his life. Therefore, Your Honor, we beg for mercy. That is not what Jesus does. Jesus asks for justice. Jesus says, my father, this is a child that you gave me before the foundation of the world. And in the fullness of time, you sent me as man born under the law to suffer the judgment of the law for this man's, this woman's sin. And, and Father, as you know, that's exactly what I did. And I paid the penalty. And this man, as you see, is robed in my righteousness. And so, Father... Um, justice requires his salvation. You see, Jesus' death did not make it possible for you to be forgiven. He made it necessary for you to be forgiven. He made it necessary. 
He stands as the guarantor of your full eternal redemption because he has become the reality of your righteousness. And that's what Stephen saw. Stephen was not considered righteous because he was brave and bold in the face of death. Stephen was brave and bold in the face of death because he was already righteous in Christ. And that's how Christianity works. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks in his book, Spiritual Depression, about people, and he'll explain this whole gospel to them, and then he'll say, now, are you ready to call yourself a Christian? And they'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not I don't know. And he'll say, what's the matter? And they'll say, well, I'm just not good enough. And, and, and Lloyd-Jones says, I just immediately realized I've wasted my breath. They still don't get it. I mean, to say I'm not good enough sounds very modest, but it's the lie of the devil and a denial of the gospel faith. You will never be good enough. Ever. The very essence of the Christian faith, Jones says, is to say this. He is good enough, and I am in him. That's the Christian faith. And that's, friends, what you apply to your guilty conscience. When your flesh rails against you and the devil accuses you, that's what you take up. Jesus is good enough, and I am in him. That's what you apply to your grief and your pain in this pilgrim journey. Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my, the ambassador from the future. Where he reigns, I one day will reign with all of God's people. That's where we live, you see, in a way that gives the fruit of love and faith and hope in the midst of this pilgrim journey until we finally reach our eternal home. Jesus is enough, and I am in him. I pray that's your confession this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners, every single one of us, and every single one of us deserves, Lord, to be condemned, and that's just the truth. And we confess it easily and tritely because we do not sense what a raging fire holiness really is. But Lord, we thank you that you've, you've given us an advocate, a, a guarantor, a mediator, a high priest who lives forever and is able to do what the law could never do. And he does it at the cost of his own body and blood. And, and so, Father, we receive Jesus by faith this morning. We thank you for the gospel, the, the essential truth of the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that that essential truth would, would increasingly transform the way we think and the way we live. That our confidence in Christ and our love for Christ and our conviction that this world is not our home, but we're destined for far greater things. Oh, Lord, that those truths would actually begin to mold us more and more to the praise and honor of our Savior. Bless us now as we come to the table where we commune with Christ and, and taste what is yet to come in sacramental form. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders to come forward.